Okay, um, well, this is part two with the interview with, um, you know, the VG Smart owner. Um, uh, now we're going to talk about some of your clients um, and maybe what they're doing and what games they're doing and, you know, how you're helping with the marketing, too. Um, so, yeah, uh, let's get started. What, what clients are you working with right now? Well, I think the biggest client I'm working with right now is Muse Games and their upcoming online FPS co-op airship combat game, Guns of Icarus Online, which you can find at gunsoficarusonline.com. Or, no, sorry, gunsoficarus.com. And that, that game is built in Unity. It's PC Mac compatible. It is, simply put, the most co-op experience you'll ever see. Steampunk airships flying around, four players on a single ship, each one with their roles that they have to perform, pilot, gunner, engineer, running around these, these fairly large ships, uh, flying through the air, blowing up other ships. It's fantastic action combat, and it's coming to Steam in September of this year. So. And so is this going to be online multiplayer or, or in, in same computer? Absolutely online. Uh, we have servers, dedicated servers for it. It's a one-time fee game, so no free-to-play, pay-to-win stuff. Uh, it's going to be similar to Guild Wars in terms of that style of, uh, of business model. How long, how long did it take to develop? It seems pretty um, intense. Well, that's a trick question. The first game, Guns of Icarus, is also on Steam. It's a very simple on-the-rail shooter, and that was sort of the prototype of, the, of this game. It was okay. the basis of it, and that took four months. And then there was another year and a half of development for Guns of Icarus Online. So this is, this is as we were talking about earlier, that professional-level India. It's a, an eight-man team, a year and a half of development, and in there, we, they also released Creavers, which is an award-winning iOS iPad game. So. Okay. Uh, did that do pretty well? I think I've heard of it. Creavers did, it did pretty well. It was, I would say it was one of those games that the awards it received outweighed the sales it had. Sure. But even still, I mean, it did very well in terms of sales. Did, did, they, do, did they do that in Unity too? then? Yeah, absolutely. It was a Unity. It was available so, on iPhone, iPad, and PC, Mac. Yeah. So the reason I ask is, um, this online game, is that going to also be on, on Android and iPhone too, since Unity supports it? Unfortunately not. There are too many technical limitations at the sure. moment. It may, and I put that in, in, in quotes, air quotes, so you can't see them, but air quotes may be coming to PSN also. Okay, awesome. Um, and then, you know, in terms of marketing, how have you been promoting this game? Obviously, you're talking about it here, but what other ways are you using it to, to gain exposure, gaining a following? How's that going? Do a lot of people know about it? Do, do the indie fans know about this game? It seems kind of compelling. I sure hope they know about it, but we've been working with a lot of... Uh, a lot of review websites doing previews. We've been doing live press tours, as well as we had this big Kickstarter campaign. Uh, we were successfully Kickstartered at I think thirty-six thousand um, dollars. And what was the campaign exactly for? Because you know, thirty-six thousand dollars isn't going to cover the um, eight-person teams. Yeah, very clever. Very clever. You notice. Well, that's why I was like, you know, that's why I was talking to someone about that. Like, look, is Kickstarter the new marketing, right? Like. That, that's just so so much more exposure than anything you can do talking to these editors now, right? Kickstarter was a multi-level objective. First of all, yes, there is money. That's actually the least important thing to the studio at the moment. The number one important thing was we get interested beta testers into the game to help break the game and uh, provide ideas and provide feedback and provide bug reports. And third was we leveraged that to marketing. We leveraged it to help promote the product itself. Uh, so we were able to tour PAX, for instance, with Kickstarter. Uh, we were th at the Kickstarter booth, and we'll be with them again, potentially at PAX Prime here, coming up very soon. Okay. So uh, 
and, and how did the PAX event go? So basically, you had a booth in PAX, or you were sharing a booth with Kickstarter and, ba- and PAX to promote the game. That's right, yeah. We're also nominated for a Dragon Con Award, Best Kickstarter Project of the Year. So uh, basically all these things come down to, yeah, we've been able to leverage our Kickstarter campaign to provide a lot of uh, exposure for the game. And then we have these previews. They're slowly rolling out right now. We've got some of the big ones coming up. MTV just did one. We've got G4 TV coming up. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're, we're rolling forward with good exposure on it. Uh, and that's the and real big one. do you feel that, that even going through these traditional media um, situations still helps that much? I mean, compared to maybe online word of mouth tweeting and social media and all these other things? I sure hope it does. Okay. Because, I, I mean, things have changed to the point where, you know, the editor, I think as you kind of inferred in the first, first part of the interview, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how much importance they have as much now compared to this, you know, this Twitter and word of mouth stuff. I could be mistaken. I, it's not... Well, I think that the... It's a mix at this point. Yes, I think it's still effective. I think that we need to support it as an industry because if we don't, we're going to lose a level of objective professionalism that is really required. And that's what sort of terrifies me about the idea of the Steam Greenlight project, which I am vocally somewhat against, only on the grounds that it pits independent developers against independent developers. No longer is there an objective third party dictating whether or not something is good. And you say, oh, well, but that's the, that's the player's job is to dictate what, what's good and what's not, which has two flaws, one being the players may not necessarily know what makes a good game. They might know what makes a good idea, but that doesn't necessarily translate into, into a good product. And second, that assumes that everybody plays fair, which, of course, they won't. And I, being a marketing guy, I won't either. I have already have several plans in place and designed to simply cheat the system. And... To hell with Steam and their, you know, objectivity. To hell with ethics. Uh, I have to do what is best for my clients, and if that means recruiting 10,000 people to support my product, even though it may not be as good as another product, that's not my problem. And that's a sad state for the independent games world. Um, so, for the audience out there, can you um, summarize what the uh, Steam Greenlight project is uh, that they who may not have heard of? So, Steam Greenlight uh, launching next month. Rather than having the standard editorial crew who, are, who decide whether or not a AAA game gets onto Steam or not, independent developers will have a platform that the users can go to and vote on what they feel is going to be a good game that they want to support. Okay. So basically using, vote, using votes yeah. to, to filter out stuff. Bingo. Um, you know, going back to marketing uh, the upcoming game, can you remind me of it again? I know it was kind of a long, long phrase. I know it's the gunship. Oh, Guns of Icarus yeah. Online. So, okay, exactly. That's just one, one of many coming up. No, that's fine. Um, so, you know, it's pretty amazing that you're getting these previews and all these other things. Um, you know, is there anything else? Do you feel that that Kickstarter has been more effective or these preview type things? I mean, is there anything where you can weigh or balance what's, been, what's worked best? Well, at the moment, because of the state and how long Kickstarter, we finished Kickstarter in February and it's now July. So Kickstarter has been the single most effective tool. Yeah. But... I would say that the previews are going to come in, if not second or, or equal to, in terms of value as a whole. 
Uh, but individually, I would say Kickstarter actually is the best marketing platform we have right now. Do you feel that's going to end pretty soon? I mean, because now you've heard of several hits, right? Like several multi-million dollar game funding hits or whatever else coming through Kickstarter. Is that time passed now, or do you feel that that it has to be the primary venue now for these indie developers to get exposure, as you said, and in the least, at the very least, get some money? It doesn't have to be the primary, but it is in your best interest if you can, if you are in the right country or you have the right uh, contacts that you can do a Kickstarter campaign. It's in your best interest to do it, for sure. And what about these physical boots? I mean, these physical boots, normally if you had to buy them, are pretty expensive, getting your developers and everyone there to, like, PAX or whatever else. Uh, do you feel that's worth it? Going to an event is absolutely worth it. If you can get to an event and in a cost-effective way, for instance, if you are if you go to PAX like, uh, like Guns of Icarus did, along with Kickstarter, where they don't have to pay for the booth, and they just have to pay for, like, some airfare, uh, it's totally worth it. There's lots of press people there. There's lots of exposure to be had. There's lots of business contacts that will find you out. Um, Guns of Icarus had a very successful meeting with PSN, knock on wood, uh, because we were a Brighton independent games developer finalist. Yeah. Uh, so we won a finalist award there for Creevers, and that resulted in us getting a PSN contact, which we then, of course, are now talking about Guns of Icarus online on PSN, so on and so on. I mean, these things all filter through. And, you know, you talked about how they're not going to be a free-to-play MMO. Did you try to convince them to go to free-to-play? Because it seems like they're, you know, this would be a very compelling service versus an upfront fee. But then again, Minecraft did an upfront fee, too, uh, to an extent. So what, what are your thoughts on free-to-play versus this pay, pay upfront? Well, you're, what you're talking about is the Asian Asianification of, uh, of pay-to-play model. Well, it works. Uh, it works in Asia, but surprisingly, it doesn't work all that well in the United States. So, well, I don't know about that. I mean, you look at Zynga. Zynga's doing pretty well, and that's free-to-play model all the way. Right? I, I, I don't disagree with the fact that Zynga seems to be doing pretty well. What I disagree with is the idea that this is the, the best route for game developers or for financially for game developers, what you have is you end up constraining the design of the game, which can end up creating a less interesting product, which will translate to lower sales. And it becomes not so readily apparent when you start doing this. Uh, so there's a huge pitfall here to be, uh, to be had and to be avoided in designing a game around a free-to-play model and creating an experience that is simply not as engaging as a pay-to-play model would be. So this is why we're, we're, we're opting for a, a one-time fee for this game, plus uh, cosmetic items only, no pay to win, but cosmetic items only, AP, uh, in-app purchasing. Okay, yeah, so you are going to have a hybrid model then. Well, there is, ex there is extra money to be had, and there's a DLC we have planned out, planned out although it's, it's a very complicated DLC, and we're not, probably not even going to brand it as a DLC, we'll brand it as a whole second game. So. But we're releasing a PvE world, sort of like an MMO world attached to it, which we'll call Adventure Mode. Uh, so right now it's a PvP-only game, and there's Adventure Mode for that. That's just one. We've, we've only talked about one. Well, yeah, so what, what other clients do you want to talk about um, that have you know in interesting story or interesting uh, marketing techniques that it work? Well, coming up soon, we have Hubrix for the iOS. And Hubrix is a puzzle game, a pure puzzle game. Can you spell that? Just because I know there's some sound here. I just want to make sure they stay here. That's H-U-E-B-R-I-X. Okay. It's a play on words for hubris. But, uh, so what you have is a very simple looking puzzle game, a very simple brain puzzle game. It is 
massively more complicated than it seems. I mean, it's not impossible to solve any of the puzzles, they're not that, that difficult even, but there are hundreds and hundreds of them. At launch, we're going to have over 300 puzzles, uh, and you'll be able to purchase the, the initial version, will come with 100, and you'll be able to purchase add-ons for that. It's very, very entertaining, very relaxing, good for like five minutes or an hour, depending on how much time you have, so it's, it's pretty neat. Uh, and did they come to you at the beginning of their product cycle or at the end of their products? They came to me I mean, development cycle. Development cycle. They came to me about a month before their release, so a month and a half, and we developed a one-month marketing plan to get them out there. And I think for the iOS platform, the iOS Droid tablet platforms, that's about right. Uh, there's not so much you can do before that. Do you feel that in that case, the best effective way for marketing on iPhone? iOS is these free app a day type things. I think that's a huge thing. I mean, I yeah. think that is a good way to get people into the game, especially if it once it has dropped off the top charts. So that's the question. If they had five thousand dollars, should they spend it on investing it in you and getting your your marketing expertise, or should they spend it on free app a day? Oh boy, I would say. Of course, no bias here. I would say that. You should probably actually spend it on free app a day. I mean, I, all things considered, that's going to be the most effective. On the bright side, though, I don't cost five thousand dollars. So okay. yeah, so that's the, that's the benefit, right? Right. There, uh, I, I do work still on a hundred percent satisfaction guarantee. So if a developer felt that my work was not worth the amount they paid, they can pay whatever they felt it was worth or nothing at all. Uh, yeah. it's, well, can you even give a rough price estimate of how much it would take an indie developer who wanted a month of your service then? Um, save for this, like, uh, releasing on iPhone or they've got a small iPhone or indie game for Android. Is it even affordable or do they need at least 1000 or 3000 as you were mentioning, for, like, your monthly fee? They need about $2,000, I think is a safe, safe number. I might be able to, you know, for a very small studio, I might be able to get talked down a little bit on that, you know, maybe as low as 1500 or so, maybe even a little bit lower. But, uh... You know, if, if that is a crippling number, we can also work on percentages. I mean, there's a way, but that, that'll be what it costs. And, and for that, you would say the most effective thing then is your expertise, maybe with the editors and, you know, running a Kickstarter campaign or whatever else to, to get the exposure. It's a combination of advice. It's a combination of peace of mind. And also that I can sit down with Slide to Play, with 148 apps, with Pocket Gamer, and I can pitch them the product. Well, sometimes in person. For instance, at the show, I have meetings yeah. with them. But mostly, you know, they know me, they've seen me at shows, they know who I am, and I, can, I can't promise, I can't absolutely promise, but I have a very good track record of making sure these things get covered. So you are pretty certain to have coverage from the main websites for these kind of, uh, kind of games. And any other clients you want to discuss uh, or the audience would benefit from knowing about? Oh, yeah, I've got two more, two more. So we have Trist, which is a, uh, you can find it at tristgame.com. Can you spell that? T-R-Y-S-T. Like a lover's tryst, although it has nothing to do with that. Um, so it's tristgame.com, right? That's right. And that is a traditional RTS a la StarCraft II. Uh, it is very pretty. It is very much a core RTS. If you are an RTS fan, you'll like the game. It's from the same guys that did Apox, which is also on Steam. It's coming to Steam also in September. September is very busy for me. Uh, and how do you, you know, how do you market such a thing? Do you just, well, you're still marketing to hardcore gamers, or do you have to find a whole new audience? Because you know, the RTS is different in some of these other games. Well, for for an RTS, you're marketing to true hardcore gamers. You're yeah. marketing to League of Legends fans. You're marketing to StarCraft fans. You're marketing to just 
anybody and everybody in the RTS world, which tends to be extreme core. So, and how do you get them to pick up a new game if they're really already addicted or playing these other games that are that they're really passionate and intense about? I think that gamers in general are a transient kind of group. They're always looking for the new thing. They're like, no, no offense to all you gamers out there, but you're like drug addicts. You know, you want to yeah. pick up whatever the newest drug is and, and take a hit of it and then move on to the next one. And that's uh, the consummate consumer. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sure. It's it's what keeps our industry flowing. You know, if everybody still played Warcraft one, then uh, uh, there would never have been StarCraft or anything following. So I would say that they they are actively, even though they're fans of, say, StarCraft II or League of Legends, they're actively still looking for the new thing, a new thing to occupy them, just for a little bit even. It doesn't have to be as great as League of Legends or as StarCraft One, uh, because all us gamers know that that was the better one, StarCraft II. But it doesn't have to be that great. It just has to be a good fix, you know, it has to be something interesting and innovative and hold your attention for the whatever the price tag is going to be. I think, I think Trist is going to be thirty dollars, so twenty nine ninety nine. Um, and then the last game that uh, you were mentioning, the last studio. The last studio is Spiderweb Software, which you actually may know. Yeah. Uh, Spiderweb has been around since nineteen ninety six, if I recall. Yeah. They've been doing hardcore RPGs, the the Western style style computer RPGs uh, for ages now. And I helped Jeff, who will probably do. You'll probably do an interview with him later. Sure. If you know any, any anyone else that we can interview um, for the audience would be awesome. Yeah. Well, Jeff will be around today. All right. Today, tomorrow, and so on. Um, but basically, I helped Jeff sort of revitalize his business. It wasn't failing. It wasn't doing badly. But it's sort of been stagnating for the last few years. Uh, you know, he has his core fans, and they don't. They love his games, and occasionally new people filter in, old people filter out. But it wasn't really going anywhere, so I helped him bring it to Steam, I helped him bring it to uh, iPad, I helped him bring it to uh, goodoldgames.com. You know, respectfully, how did you convince him to change platforms? Because the one interesting thing, um, you know, there's for the audience out there, I interviewed him a while back, um, was that he would, he would stick to the PC platform. You know, actually it was him that had the impetus to say, I want to bring it to iPad and see what will happen. And I helped him flesh out sort of the, the marketing plan behind that. So he was actually, he actually changed his tone. Uh, certainly he was, a, he, he's never been against trying out new distribution sources, but sure. he's always been, he's always been sort of reluctant in terms of uh, believing that it's going to be successful. He really, he would do it knowing that it was going to be a failure. And I said, no, we're going to make this work. We had him on, uh, we got, I got him on to Humble Bundle. Uh, so... You know, yeah. And so, um, has he? Has he? How, how's that in terms of results? What's what has he seen in terms of you know trying these new distribution strategies and marketing strategies? Uh, I think he wouldn't be too mad for me to mention that his net profit this year is up over three times what it was last year. Okay, awesome. So. Um, and I guess what else are you going to do to help promote his games more? Um, yeah, I mean, is there anything else you can share? Because what's interesting about him is that he is like that typical one-person indie team, and it would be nice to see how you know you were actually able to help him. And that it's interesting that he was able, willing to reach out to you. You know, he was willing to actually pay that fee for marketing and stuff like that. It actually took quite a bit of convincing. It took me over a year of, of, of talking to him to convince him to work with me. But uh, I mean, I thought why didn't you just walk away? I mean, seriously, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, 
I, I, in the indie space, you always see like it's so hard to convince people to do the right thing or to get more exposure. Do you even just bother to care anymore? Like, oh, well, of course I care. Just, well, care, but care for the people who are hungry for it, right? No. Yes and no. Uh, for Jeff, it's a slightly odder situation because I'm a huge fan of his work. Okay. So I was not going to give up on him. I saw the potential there for a lot of a lot more than he was getting, uh, and. You know, I, I joke with him that when I was 13, I played his games. I downloaded them illegally, of course, as a, as a teenager will. So uh, it's, it's just a laugh for me to work with him at this point. You know, like, <laughs> oh yeah, I stole your games when, when I was a kid. But that's the way it is. I mean, I grew up playing his games, and I was, I, I was going to be damned if he was going to ignore me forever. So uh, he was always very cordial with me, and eventually I convinced him that to let me take his game. Actually, I had a meeting in person with Valve, and we brought it to Steam, and then we brought it to iPad, and then we brought it to all these other platforms, and it's done very well everywhere it's gone. Can you talk about uh, the results on Steam versus iPad and tablet uh, form factor? Is, is the iPad more effective for his games than Steam? No, but it is pretty close. Yeah. Uh, I can't give away any numbers or any, sure. anything, because that's, that'll be Jeff's job. If you want to talk sure. to him, he, he's welcome to say what he wants. But it is, uh, iPad represents a very large percentage of his sales now. Now, when you say iPad, are you talking about iPhone and iPad, or are you just talking mainly about tablets now as, as you know, a preeminent distribution platform? Tablets only. And for Jeff's case, I want to bring up a very important case. Jeff's game is on iPad for $9.99, which yeah. is a high price for a mobile device. Yeah, exactly. And the reason I bring that up is if you have an innovative product, a real interesting, in-depth, like a 40-hour RPG, you don't have to be relegated to this $0.99 cent ideal or even dollar ninety nine ideal. You can charge more for it. So I think I think there's a a lot of value to be had in not underpricing yourself. And what about Kickstarter? When are, when are we going to see uh, Jeff's games on Kickstarter? I mean, right? I mean, th that would be perfect. I think I think that is coming. I think that is uh, something that he and I actually are planning, on, or I'm planning on talking to him about in the next couple of days, uh, bringing his next game onto Kickstarter for a variety of reasons, not just the uh, not just the marketing side, but also for. Um, getting pre-orders as, as sort of a pre-order platform, and also potentially expanding the design of the game. As everybody knows, anybody who knows Spiderweb Software's games, they look old. Even the new ones look old. There always seem to be a few behind. So maybe bringing up um, some of the sounds and music, for instance. Not necessarily the art, because Jeff is very um, protective of the art style. I understand. He basically, he likes the art style. Uh, he likes the idea of a 2.5D perspective game. That's fine. Uh, that's a design choice. But it's pretty inarguable that the sound effects and music could use some serious work. So using Kickstarter to sort of ensure that that gets pushed up to the next level would be very valuable. And... Um yeah, cool. Anything else you want to share then about your clients or what be relevant to the listeners um, out there? All my clients are awesome. I love them all. And it's not just because they pay me buku bucks. Um, okay, and where can listeners find out more just about your services and uh, potentially, you know, check out the clients too? Uh, do you have a list of clients? And if they want to, you know, obviously they can re-listen to this interview, but maybe you have a place where you have a list of your clients. Man, oh man, I really need to update that website. 2006 is so long ago. But the best way to do it is send me an email at sales at VGSmart. That's VictorGeorgeSmart.com. And... I will personally get back to you with a handwritten list of my clients, both recent and current, 
and there's just like, there, there's a great list of guys. There's Wajidai Games in there from yeah. uh, Resonance and the uh, Gemini Rue. I worked with them. I worked with Amaranth Games and their Avion series. Oh, yeah. So many good indie developers on the uh, on the recent list. And where do you see indie games going in the future of the industry? Um, you know, you've seen you've seen the marketing perspective of all this. Where do you think everything's going? Do you feel that it's going to be bigger in a couple of years or smaller in a couple of years or what? Indie games move in cycles, and they always have. There was the shareware boom, and there was the shareware sort of decline where AAA titles really took center stage. And there was like another brief burst of independent developers, and then there was a big lull. Uh, and we are at really the tip top, I feel, of indie game development right now. I suspect that it may climb a bit higher yet, but we will see a regression where these independent studios are either purchased or go on to become larger studios. And innovation will get crushed by things like, well, frankly, uh, once again, I bring up the my, my slight dislike of, my more than slight dislike of the Greenlight Project, where and as you mentioned, the, the incessant uh, free-to-play microtransaction models, yeah. where the innovation once again gets crushed by the sort of corporate ideals uh, of chasing profit. I mean, free to, to be fair, free-to-play has actually been a front to indies. I mean, there have been a lot of indies that have done well with the free-to-play model. But, you know, for the record, would you even market a free-to-play game? I mean, is this something that listeners who are doing free-to-play stuff should even do? or? Yeah, yeah, I would definitely do a free-to-play game. I, uh, it's, it's not that I dislike them. It's not even, in fact, I, I play a, quite a few of them. One of my favorite games is World of Tanks, for instance, which is a free-to-play model game. But it is very easy to use the free-to-play model in place of innovation and of better design. And so what I think we're going to see coming up in the future is a reduction of creativity followed by a decline in independent games, uh, which will be then followed by a burst of creativity when people get real sick of seeing the same thing over and over again. So, um, Cool. So thanks again for your time. Any last words then for the listeners out there? Buy indie games. Okay. Thank you.